the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. Wednesday, May 11th, 2022. Let me give the number off the top, 602-508-0960. Chris Llewellyn, uh, my boss and uh, the vice president of all things important, will be uh, sitting in as producer today. Welcome back, Chris. Bill will be back tomorrow. You doing well? Hope you're doing well. It's good to see you. Thank you for doing this. Uh, We'll put my monologue at the top of the third hour today. First, uh, little breaking news for you. The United States Senate voted down Chuck Schumer's legislation to protect uh, abortion all the way up until the moment of birth. The Women's Health Act is what it was called. It was proposed, especially in light of the leaked draft opinion uh, from Sam Alito in the Dobbs case. And while many people were talking about the extreme nature of this legislation, it was a question as to whether... Uh, every Republican would vote against it. Every Republican did, including uh, Sue Col- Susan Collins from Maine and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, who were uh, who were questions because they uh, certainly Sue Collins is known as one of the uh, more staunch pro-choice advocates in the U.S. Senate and certainly in the Republican Party. It was too much for even them. And it got a Democrat vote as well. Joe Manchin from West Virginia so it failed 49 to 51. One can say honestly that this legislation failed at a bipartisan level in that it did get at least a Democrat vote. No Republican switched sides. A Democrat did. Um, and so the uh, Senate in an overreach uh, failed. And the uh the, the the protests in front of Supreme Court justices goes on. I wanted to switch to that for just a moment because of what the Senate did and what this uh, author at MSNBC uh, has uh, has written uh, in a in a in a in a um, in an op-ed today posted at MSNBC. Uh, protests out the, outside the Supreme Court justice homes are good is the title of it, and the author says. Outside of protesting in front of the justices' homes, quote, what exactly are the alternatives for the citizenry? And this is really an infection of our mind that someone can ask that question with a straight face. If you don't like a Supreme Court decision, uh, you break the you break the law because there is no other venue to deal with it. There is no other manner in which you as a citizen have recourse. What exactly are the alternatives for the citizenry? Well, my gosh, uh, one of them might be to obey the federal law. Uh, There is a federal law. It is not being enforced by this Department of Justice. There, in fact, are two federal laws that uh, prevent the protesting in front of Supreme Court justices' homes for the reasons that they are protesting. One is specific to the justices' homes and the intimidation of the court. The other is the obstruction, federal obstruction of justice statute. But the notion, and it's in every single op-ed on the uh, wrongness, if you will, of the Alito uh, draft opinion, 
that the majority, you will see it in every single op-ed about the, what the majority of Americans' views are on abortion. And of course, the cited polls in these op-eds are really all over the place, and it depends on which poll you look at. I think the most important and telling one is the Gallup poll, which has it at about 47-49, within a margin of error, for goodness sakes. But even that is unimportant. The Supreme Court was never there. The federal courts were never there to ratify, were never erected, were never created to ratify majoritarian sentiment in this country. Can we appreciate that for a moment? They were never supposed to be merely the rubber stamp and certification of majoritarian sentiment, either at the federal level or at the state level. The purpose of the Supreme Court is not to look at polls and not to look at how majorities decided. The purpose of the federal court system and the Supreme Court in particular is to look at a grievance, a statute, or a conflict that comes before them and look to the Constitution to find out if it's unconstitutional or constitutional. That's what it's there for. It is an anti, if anything, it is an anti-majoritarian institution. Just ask yourself, how is it that so many ballot propositions conservatives, quote-unquote conservative positions have taken, conservatives have sponsored, whether it has to do with marriage, whether it does in fact have had to be done with abortion, whether it had to do with enforcing immigration law. Arizona has a lot of experience in that, where the majority of the people by ballot measure or by state legislature overwhelmingly supported something that the Supreme Court overturned. No one was making arguments in those days that the Supreme Court was acting in the face or flying in the face of majoritarian sentiment because it would have been a foolish thing to say. The Supreme Court was never there to ratify majoritarian sentiment. It's there to look at the Constitution and the statute of the conflict that is in front of it and decide whether the Constitution has something to say or not say about it. What other recourse do citizens have? Abide by the law of the land. Respect the court or get to work at your state legislature and deal with the issue and make the law in your state the law that you want or rally enough support to elect the president who you want to put Supreme Court justices on the Supreme Court. Republicans did that. They did it with Donald Trump. They did it with Donald Trump, and they got Supreme Court justices whose views on the Constitution supported their views, which I think are actually the right and correct views. That's my position as well. The left and the liberals have used the courts for a very long time as a countermeasure to majoritarian sentiment in this country. That's how they come up with phrases like a living constitution, where they can read things into the constitution to go against majority sentiment in this country and overrule majority sentiment in this country. It's quite precious to see the left, in other words, start citing majoritarian polls as conflicting with a Supreme Court decision. Please understand that we do ballots here, not bullets. We don't resort to vigilante justice when the courts come out with a decision we don't like. That's the way that leads to anarchy, which is the way that leads to tyranny. How many times do we have to put it that our entire system of government here, our entire system of governance here is based on consent? Because men are by nature equal, right? That's what we declared at our beginning, because that is no man is by nature the ruler of another. The government derives its just powers from 
consent. That is from the opinion of the governed. And we each get turns to govern. That is if you agree with our constitutional republic, if you agree with our founding ethos, if you agree with what America is, up until now, supposed to have stood for. We, to some, are a democracy, to others, a constitutional republic. In either event, however you want to describe it, it's based on consent, right? What does consent mean? It means agreement. How do you get agreement? You get agreement by respecting each other's vote and the decisions of the government. You don't like it? You can break the law and be a civil disobedient. Sure, sure, you can do that. Martin Luther King did that to a fairly well, and he did it during the day. He didn't do it at night. He didn't protest in front of people's houses, and the laws he broke were mostly municipal and state laws, not federal laws, and not certainly putting people's lives in danger or putting people's lives in such danger that they had to go into the equivalent of a federal witness protection program like Sam Alito and his family have had to do. That's point one. Point two on this story is the one that no one seems to be willing to talk about. And it came out a little bit when the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, in testimony to the Senate yesterday, said the following. I'll play you the audio when we come back if you want, but said the following. In many cases, abortions are of teenage women, particularly low income and often black. It's not many cases, actually. In many cases, abortions are of teenage women, particularly low income and often black, who aren't in a position to be able to care for children, have unexpected pregnancies, and it deprives them of the ability to continue their education to later participate in the workforce. What a horrible thing to say. What a horrible thing to say. And she probably said it to the wrong person because the person she said it to was Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, who said in response, I'll just simply say that as a guy raised by a black woman in abject poverty, I'm thankful to be here as a United States senator. Jason Riley at the Wall Street Journal had something to say about it, too, which we'll get to when we come back. But I am Seth Liebson, and it is 602 Yeah, country music. They do. They talk about the real stuff, the durable things. For those of you, let me mention, looking for a great, unique investment opportunity with a remarkable return for investors, I want you to check out my friends at YReFi. They are my friends. I've spent a lot of time with them. And as I say, it's a wonderful opportunity. I'm talking about a no-load fixed interest rate up to 10.25% for investors, all in a secure and collateralized port- portfolio. Why Refi helps people who are digging out of debt, doing their best, trying to do it the right way, and doing the right thing in paying off their debts, debts, doing it with dignity, and fixing their FICO scores along the way as well so they can get their life back together. Why Refi is a due del- diligence-approved firm run by, as I say, great people who are doing very well by helping others, and you can be to check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then R E F Y.com. Investyrefi.com or give them a call at 855 316 3087. Local company, you can visit them and uh, they'll, they're happy to tell you about everything they do and how they do it. You won't get a sales pitch. As I say, they're just really proud of what they're doing and you can be a part of it too. Investyrefi.com. 
or call him at 855-3163-087. Before the break, I was giving you a little bit of the uh, of the uh, byplay between Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott, and Janet Yellen yesterday when, uh, to refresh, uh, Janet Yellen uh, talking about about abortion said in many cases abortions are of teenage women particularly low-income and often black who aren't in a position to be able to care for children have unexpected pregnancies and it deprives them of the ability to continue their education to later participate in the work workforce to which uh, senator scott interjected and said i'll simply say that as a guy raised by a black woman in abject poverty i am thankful to be here as a United States Senator. My circumstances, like so many others, millions and millions of kids being raised in poverty by single-parent households that happen to be black, telling black teenage moms that there is only one alternative for them is a depressing and challenging message. Thank you for getting that out there, Tim Scott. It is quite something to watch multimillionaire white women lecture Black men that grew up in poverty and aren't anywhere close to being millionaires, that the only alternative for black teenage pregnancies is abortion. Jason Riley got on to this. He has been on a kick. He's a black man himself. He writes at the Wall Street Journal. He has been on this for a long time that when it comes to the issue of abortion, of abortion in America, we are talking race. Nationally, he writes, the number of babies aborted by black women each year far exceeds the combined, combined number of blacks who drop out of school, who are sent to prison, and who are murdered. Did you realize that? Did you realize that for those that really do think black lives matter and are concerned about black lives matter, as everyone should, as everyone should be, really? They are... Far exceeded abortions, far exceed the things that the BLM movement talks about. They exceed the number of blacks who drop out of school, who are sent to prison, and who are killed in homicides. Black abortions outnumber all of that. Think about what the black abortion rate has done to the black population in this country. It has reduced it by double-digit percentages. You want to increase the black population in this country? You want to increase black voting rights in this country by giving more black people votes in this country? Abortion is the enemy to all that. Jason Riley goes on, pro-choice activists typically dismiss these facts as a function of poverty since lower-income women are more likely to get abortions and black women are more likely to have lower incomes. But even among other low-income groups, such as Hispanics, Black women still abort at significantly higher rates. If you think this is all just accidental, look at the origins of what Margaret Sanger stood for and where Planned Parenthood puts the vast majority of its clinics. Jason Riley continues, a more plausible explanation is the one put forward by Stanford Law Professor Ralph Richard Banks. Having a spouse, Professor Banks speculates, may be what matters most in a woman's decision to seek an abortion. A single woman with an unplanned pregnancy is about twice as likely as a married woman, he writes. Black women thus may have so many more abortions than other groups in part because they are so much less likely to be married. 
The irony, he adds, is that even though single black women are less likely to abort than other groups of single women, black women still have more abortions because they are far more likely than their white counterparts to be single. Some portion of the racial disparities in abortion are yet another cost of the marriage decline among blacks. What are we doing about the marriage decline in this country, if anything? When's the last time you heard anyone talk about it? I'll tell you the last time I heard anyone talk about it. Last time I anyone heard anyone talk about it was Barack Obama in one speech on Father's Day and during the Bush administration where Robert Rector at the Heritage Foundation had proposed a, a marriage promotion initiative throughout this country. Speaking of initiatives in this country, promotional initiatives in this country from the government, when's the last time any of you can tell me you saw an anti-drug use or an anti-drug ad on television. For those of you that are roughly, I don't know, 45 years of age or older, you will remember constant ads on television throughout the 80s and early 90s. Constant ads, which led to, in part due to those ads, led to national conversations, news you couldn't ignore, um, instructions uh, and advice on par- to parents and organizations on how to talk about the issue, uh, drug education in schools. When's the last time you saw any of that? In those days, it led to a 50% dramatic, 50% reduction in drug use. 50% reduction in drug use by 1993, from 1979 to 1993. We have a story today. Headline, Washington Post. More Americans died of drug overdoses last year than any previous year. A grim milestone in an epidemic that has now claimed one million lives in the 21st century, according to federal data released Wednesday. 107,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2021, up 15% from the previous year. Why do you think that is? I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about what this nation can do when it really cares about an epidemic. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. We get to do our culture and economy update at 34 past the hour with the great John Dombrowski from Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His website is grandcanyonplanning.com. And he also has his own radio show here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. The word on wealth. John, welcome back to the show. I hope you're doing okay. Doing fantastic. Thank you, Seth. You betcha. Thank you for being here. Even the bullish Wall Street Journal's headline is inflation slipped in April, but upward pressures remain. The slip is not that significant. It's uh, it's about two-tenths of a percentage point. But to give people a sense, the price of fuel oil is up 85% on an annual basis. Electricity is up 11%. Cars and trucks, 22%. Clothing, 5 Meat, poultry, fish, and eggs, 14 This is quite a challenge, John. Right. And I think if you read deeper into some of these articles, you know, the, the challenge is uh – we're hearing that it's 8.3%, which was even higher than what was expected. So yeah. even though it's two-tenths lower than, than March's report, uh, it is still higher than what was expected. We were expecting a four-tenths of a percent reduction, but we only got two. Right. So that, that was certainly not uh, you know good news in the eyes of investors, and the stock market reacted to that again as well. 
um, even though it's pulled back slightly, not enough. And as you mentioned, Seth, that 8% number, is that a real number or not when you're throwing out numbers like yeah. uh, energy prices yeah. going up 80%? Yeah, that's a good uh, point. We know the prices at the gas yeah. pump are up much more than 8% yeah. uh, year over year, and all of the other uh, consumer-type products that all of us need, and these are not, uh, you know, discretionary items in many cases. I mean, food is, is pretty much, I think food's a necessity. So that is uh, one of the things that we all have to suffer through. And as we know, um, even though wages have increased, that inflationary pressure has taken away more than what uh, many people have gotten as an increase in their wages. So there is still a pinch here, and it is it is still being felt by the average everyday American. And I would say this. I did speak to a very prominent realtor in uh, one of the higher-end markets in the Valley here recently, and they're telling me over the last three weeks they are seeing a significant slowdown in uh, the interest uh, in, in purchasing property right now and in, in purchasing houses and, and real estate in general. So... This is going to start to spill over into other aspects of different markets, and people are going to have to be aware that this may not be a short-term scenario for us. We may have to uh, rename our segment uh, Culture, Politics, and Economy, right? Uh, Because the political thing does play a a part, a big part here. You and I have been hopeful. That's the word for it. Don't let me put words in your mouth if you want to correct me. But you and I have been hopeful that what the Fed has been doing by raising raising those um, those those uh, those borrowing rates uh, and limits might have a, a a bigger or stronger effect on inflation. But then, when you listen to the president talk, you wonder if 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 we are on the way to arresting inflation because he will accept none of the blame and continue pushing policies that seem to be at odds with the policies you would want to push in an inflationary moment, whether it's about fossil fuels uh, or whether it's about, uh, you know, making it harder, more difficult, restricting domestic energy production here. When he talks like he did yesterday, blaming everything on Ukraine and Russia, you get the sense that maybe either he's trying to make a political point or doesn't realize what the real causes are here. Uh, and that may be a little of both. You're right, yeah. Jeff. Uh, we, we also have to take into consideration the Fed can only do what they can do, right, right. by raising rates. Right. This is the only tool that they have in their bag right. at the moment. That's right. We don't, we don't have one other important tool. We don't have the ability at this point to put more people to work to produce more because we're at the lowest unemployment rate we've had in decades, right? We don't have the workforce. Uh, to be able to produce more. So we're, we have this constraint. We have a shortage because we can't produce more. We have high demand. Uh, so the only alternative at this point in time is the federal, uh, the federal government to raise rates. And that is, as we know, uh, going to put a, a stifling effect on some of the other areas of the market. So it's a challenge right now. Uh, we have to have the stomach for this. We've got to be able to make adjustments in our own everyday living life, in our financial life. Uh, to be able to get through this. But I will say this. I'm still an optimist, Seth, yeah, good. and there will be light at the end of the tunnel. I'm with We're you, gonna too. Survive. Yeah. We're going to survive. You bet. Uh, again, we've got the midterms coming, and then we have uh, another couple years you after bet. that to where we can you know, really uh, make a difference. All right, brother. Give it to me.
You got it. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of FinRed, typically an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Welcome back to the Seth Leeson Show. You bet. I love that balance of nature. I take it every single day. It gives you 10 servings of fruits and vegetables in one daily dose. Every single day I take it, and it boosts my immunity, keeps my energy up, keeps my health in great shape. I haven't been sick in years, not since I've been taking it, and uh, I attribute Balance of Nature to it 100% natural. Go to balanceofnature.com, check out their fruits and veggies, make sure to use discount code BALANCE. As we do every Wednesday, we check in with Brett W. Johnson, partner at the law firm of Snell & Wilmer, to uh, educate us on the constitutional issues of the day. No one better than Mr. Johnson to do so. Brett, thanks for being with us, as you always are. No problem. Thank you for having me. You bet. Uh, what's the old uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes line? Uh, hard cases make bad law. We are in a uh, we are in an interesting series of debates when it comes to the Constitution right now. To put it no higher, and one of the issues that has proven nettlesome to put it also no higher is the issue of privacy, the constitutional right to privacy. It's surprising to most people to learn that they're not going to find it in the Constitution, actually. What would you like to tell us about the right to privacy, Brett? That is correct. The right to privacy, as uh, in the draft opinion, has been um, basically, basically authenticated by the Supreme Court. So now we know from our last call that we, we know it is a, a true copy, um, is from the, the Dobbs versus uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization. You know, Justice Alito, at least in the draft opinion, makes it very, very clear that there is not a right to privacy within the Constitution. And then we're basically going going further back than even Roe versus Wade. It was read into the 14th Amendment by previous courts and Justice Alito, and obviously, uh, major, at least we believe a majority of the court is saying the exact same thing that there is no right to privacy within the Constitution, and that's going to have a drastic impact um, on on how the court, or how district courts and cities, municipalities, and the government acts in the in the in the future for sure. The way we got there started, as best I recall, Brett, and as best I know, the way we got to a, quote-unquote, constitutionally protected right to privacy was in uh, language that Justice uh, Douglas wrote in a case called Griswold, right? Is that your is that your understanding? I mean, he, he, he tells us in the Griswold case, uh, which predated Roe, that the zones of privacy that come to us through the Bill of Rights do so through, quote, penumbras formed by emanations, close quote. That's not a very solid grounding for a constitutional right as serious as privacy, but that is what Roe depended on. And if I read the Alito decision right, when Roe was reaffirmed in the Casey decision— they kind of abandoned that argument in a sense because they realized it may – I don't know why they abandoned it. My guess is they realized it was on shaky ground in the first place. But that's what Alito says. He said that privacy guarantee was all, was already abandoned by Casey for the most part. Yeah, and I, and I think that's exactly right. Remember Casey came after Roe versus Wade and mm-hmm. the, the case that you mentioned – um, you know, it was a 1965 case, um, that basically, that dealing with um, um, contraception, yeah. you know, right. controlled birth, birth, birth control, and um, what, what the, and basically it was an extrapolation. 
Now, the one thing about that case, the one thing that we have to make sure we understand here is when Alito, Justice Alito, goes through the analysis in the most recent case, he's talking about history. Yeah. And at least in the case that you made, made reference to, um, that law, it was a Connecticut case, and goes all the way back to the law it was in 1879 okay. that talked about the difference, different banning back and forth. So there's a historical context in, in there that that possibly could could save it under Justice Alito's kind of analysis. Mm-hmm. But the reality is is that you know the, the, when they looked at Roe and then they looked at Casey versus Planned Parenthood, they said because Casey basically abandoned Roe versus Wade. A mm-hmm. lot of people say Roe versus Wade. It was all you know, it really was Casey versus Planned Parenthood right. yeah. that brought us to the modern era. And because Casey realized that Roe was was on shaky ground, therefore, how could it possibly um, be read into the Constitution that far back? Plus, and we're going a little bit off the tangent on your question here, but the, the Supreme Court, this Supreme Court in particular, and state Supreme Courts across the country, they really have moved type argument. Um, basically, hey, the words actually have meaning, and you can't read into things. If, if the people want words to be read into a constitution, then there's a process for that. But the, the courts are not appropriately to extrapolate language, even you know what, they, what we, some people call the living constitution. Well, it has to grow, and the courts are responsible for that. The courts are saying, no, we're really not. That's the role of the legislature. That's the role of the people. You want to change the Constitution? Go ahead and change the Constitution. Don't look at the courts to do it for you. You know what, Brett? That's that's super helpful. I'm glad you put it that way. Brett Johnson is our guest who we're speaking with. And the other thing I would add is nothing stops a constitutional amendment guaranteeing a right to privacy. But moreover, nothing stops the states where a lot of these cases emanate from, uh, from from having constitutional protections for privacy. Alaska is an example. Other states are. It's just the first one, but <laughs> alphabetically, that that reads the right of the people. This is in their constitution. The right of the people to privacy is recognized and shall not be infringed. Um, state constitutions can do this. It just so happens the federal constitution, the U.S. Constitution, never did. That that's exactly right. So. Where, as Justice Alito points out, this is going to go back to the states. They, they, the, the Supreme Court, at least in the draft opinion, does not really take in a position, although Justice Alito has some strong language about abortion, mm-hmm. um, talking about the morality of it, et cetera. But what they're saying is that this is a state law issue. So this is going to go back to the state laws if this, if this opinion holds. And, and then courts are, state courts are going to have to interpret state constitutions, right. state right. laws, right. to determine whether or not it exists. So it, it's, going to be, it's going to be a very interesting hallmark. And what we've seen commentators from across the spectrum say, and I, and I got to tell you, I think that they're probably right. You know, Justice Alito tries to pigeonhole this just about abortion because abortion has such a, what he calls a moral framework. And, and in that context, though, I think if he tries to limit it to just abortion, unfortunately or unfortunately, he, he is, he's actually opened a Pandora's box. There's no way around that. As, as a practicing lawyer trying to tell me that I can only use this case for abortion law in the future, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, he, he, has, a, he has a whole new analysis basically on, on uh, whether or not they're sorry decisis and precedent matters. And then secondarily, he reads uh, the, the Constitution on the right to privacy. If, if I'm practicing across the country, 
specifically in regard to small municipalities that have maybe different philosophies than the urban area. So you have the rural versus urban, and they have a different uh, political philosophy. You're going to see different cases that are going to come directly out of this. So it, it, is, it is a major, major case. Well, it'll make the courts, the I, I would hope it would make the courts and litigators in this country and the citizens of this country take the issue a little more seriously, because a lot of this has rested on language like in Casey, where we get the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning of the universe, and the mystery of human life. That's an awfully relativistic thing for people to hang their hats on and is no guarantor of any kind of constitutional protection, much less certainty or surety in the law. So to the degree that it gets the courts to tighten up the language so that we all can operate under a rule of law, you know, there's that part, too. There is, and, and, and there's no bigger proponent, by the way, than, than Scalia, um, Justice Scalia, former yep. Judge Justice Scalia, yep. um, who, who, who made rulings that he philosophically probably disagreed with. Sure. But he said this is the rule of law. Yep. Also, yep. by the way, as Justice Alito points out in the most recent draft opinion, did, did Justice Ginsburg, yep. you know, when yep. she was talking about the Eighth Amendment yep. and saying, hey, listen, it's just not there about yep. the Eighth Amendment. That's and exactly that's right. Cruel and unusual punishment. That's right. So, you know, you're taking it from different spectrums, possibly from a philosophical standpoint. But the reality is, is that words have meaning. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. We're doing something, by the way, really interesting for Memorial Day. I think really good. Uh, here at 960, the pa- Patriot, we're commemorating those who paid the ultimate sacrifice, as Memorial Day is all about, as we honor what we are calling and what others have called the price of freedom. We're looking for stories from you about those who paid that ultimate sacrifice. And on the week of May 23rd, coming up each day on this show, on my show, we'll be reading the incredible stories of heroism that you send us from you, our listeners. Uh, we will, of course, honor every story. But we will also select at random, at random, one story that will be honored with the flag, U.S. flag that has flown over the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. to honor all veterans. So this Memorial Day, share a special part of your history with us. Uh, Share your special story with us and then listen in the week of May 23rd to hear it. Uh, You can get information and uh, submit your story via our website, 960thepatriot.com. That's 9. 60thepatriot.com. A bunch of you, I'm so sorry, are on hold, and I was loaded for the first hour. I'm going to ask you, John Hinderocker's coming right up from the Powerline blog. I'm going to ask you, you're welcome to stay on hold or give us a call back in about 20 or so minutes if you prefer, and I promise we'll get to you. We have, we have time for you. We just didn't have time in the first hour. Much uh, many apologies. My sincere apologies. Uh, John Hinderocker is coming right up, though, so we will be right back with John. Don't go away. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.